every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. How do you take that strategy and now focus it on a league of women? Um, I think that is a little more difficult, a little tricky. It's not you're working with one team and you're not working with one individual player. You're working with 12 teams and 144 players. So it's a difficult thing to adapt. Welcome to 94 and More, a podcast presented by Bristol Studio. I'm Jake Fenster, and I'm here with Vic Law. What's good? Today, our guest is Camille Buxeda. Thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me, guys. What's going on? Can you introduce yourself a little bit for the audience that might not be familiar with you? Yeah, for sure. Uh, my name is Camille Buxeda. Uh, I head up our women's basketball content at Slam Media Inc. I've uh, been doing this for a couple of years now, and yeah, that's what I'm up to these days. Very nice. And how did you get started working at Slam? Is that something uh, that you always, you were a fan of or or that just kind of happened naturally? No, yeah, definitely been a Slam OG. I mean, it's pretty funny. Slam is definitely like a New York company. It's definitely like a East Coast thing, but I'm from Florida and was kind of a big basketball fan my entire life growing up. And I was always kind of a day one follower. I was also founded the year I was born, so I can say day one for a reason. And then basically I was working at the WNBA under the NBA for a year and Slam kind of came out of nowhere, said they wanted someone to head up uh, their entire women's basketball content strategy and starting up their brand. And they sold me on it pretty quick. So I was How happy to like jump on board. And Sorry to cut you off. It was a... It was, no, you're good. It was a good experience. I mean, damn, like I've never learned so much in such a little amount of time. I was only there about 10 months because that's how their contract programs work. I think one of the most difficult things to accept almost was that we work under the content team that is spearheaded by the NBA. So we we do become a secondary outlet, you know, league. You know, it's right. just the realities of it. And so the resources, we're basically working, I would say, with like a tenth of the resources as the NBA does to do the same thing or cover it at least at the same level. So mm-hmm. I, I did get to learn a lot because, you know, you're doing the job of so many people and it was extremely hands-on. But uh, definitely, it really is what's led me to where I am able to do now. There's no way I couldn't have done it without it. But I think that was one of the toughest parts of it. Uh, what do you mean when you say, you know, more specifically, it was secondary to the NBA, like from a content standpoint? Like, what was that like working in that type of environment? It was difficult because there was only a handful of people that really knew the game that were covering it from a content perspective. And you need more than a handful of people to do the job. So there were people assigned to do WNBA games or things that weren't necessarily, you know, working for the WNBA. They were NBA specific employees, but you know, in the summertime, there's nothing going on on the NBA th- on the NBA side. So, you know, they're able to reallocate those resources to the W. Um, so that's kind of what I would mean more by secondary in terms of the level of knowledge and like dedication to what you know, they have on the NBA side just wasn't necessarily there on the W side. But um, it is also the realities of a league that's only been around for 24 years. It is new to the extent if you think about where the NBA was 20 years in, I mean, it didn't pop off until you saw Larry and Magic and then even MJ. So I know it is a growing pains type of uh, experience. But yeah, it was, it was that was one of the toughest parts is just kind of noticing the the lack of resources. 
Before we get more into the WNBA, because it's definitely something that, you know, we want to go over with you more in depth. I want to go back to your upbringing a little bit. Uh, You said you were from Florida. What part of Florida did you grow up in? So I was born in Puerto Rico. Uh, My dad played in the Puerto Rican national team there in the 50s and 60s. So kind of where my basketball tie comes in. I moved to Florida when I was about six years old and grew up in Orlando, uh, North Orlando, like Lake Mary, like, I don't know, not that anyone's going to know. Very small town in Orlando. I think Um, Vic might know. (laughs) Vic might know, actually. No idea. (laughs) Um, yeah, shout out the Magic. Um, was a Magic fan. Was there for the 09 finals when we got our hearts ripped out by Kobe and the Lakers. Um, anyways, yeah, so grew up in Orlando. Uh, was always an avid basketball fan. It was kind of the tie I had to my dad. We didn't grow up. He stayed in Puerto Rico and I grew up in Florida. So basketball was always what kind of brought us together. I, I was always a follower, an avid fan. And then when I went to college, I did some coverage on it at the college level at Florida State. And from there, I knew I wanted to work in the pros. And so, you know, where do you go to do that? New York City. Where else do you go to do that? The NBA. Having your dad playing on the national team, did you get a chance to kind of see that up close and get kind of exposed to the business side of the game? Not as much. Uh, my dad's older. <laughs> Won't say how old, so I don't get disowned. Um, no, but yeah, so I obviously wasn't around when he was in his playing years. Uh, he did. He did work pretty closely. Because, I mean, and I know you know because of the Phil Jackson story a lot, the USA basketball team and Puerto Rican national, it's very close ties in terms of the basketball scene. Um, and so he worked and knew some of the people that are now at USA basketball or on the USA basketball side of the NBA. And so when I, it's funny, when I was looking for jobs, he would like try and like throw out names, but I'm like, dad, those people are long gone. It's been a minute <laughs> since you've been a part of this. Um, so it is kind of cool that he did know some of the insights in terms of kind of guiding me when I made my decision to go down this route. Uh, But I didn't necessarily get to see it up close and personal. Got you. And did you play at all? No, I didn't. I was four foot nine going into my freshman year of high school. So basketball was not in the cards. Listen, listen, the glow up is all that matters. I'm a good, I'm a solid (laughs) five, five now. That's where, you know, dreams are made. I was way too tiny uh, growing up. So definitely more of a sideline follower. And did you do any other sports or you just kind of appreciate it from the sidelines? Um, no, yeah, I appreciate it from the sidelines. I was actually a gymnast my whole life for 15 years until I was uh, 16, uh, 17. I was like right in the in the process of college recruitment and, and had some major injuries and couldn't really make my way back. But uh, it's cool because gymnastics helped me formulate and, and shape, I would say, my career and my drive and my dedication to whatever crafts I decide to put into. Because um, for those who may not know, gymnastics is an individual sport. You know, it's not like you're working with teams and it's very likely your coach has 20 other athletes they have to worry about. So um, it is very much a self-driven, self-starting uh, type of sport. And that really did shape and, and kind of guide where I'm at today. Wow. That was a, that was a very uh, foolproof answer. <laughs> I wasn't expecting I was like, all right. So going back to what you said, when you were at Florida State, you said you also covered sports, right? That's where you first got started kind of in the career portion of working in sports. Yeah, yeah. I was um, pre-med for three years, wanted to be a doctor. My like basically going into my senior year, I was like, yep, don't want to go to medical school. Uh, And I had been working with the athletic department since I had gotten there in different capacities. So my first two years, I worked more on the media end covering uh, FSU football, FSU basketball, women's basketball, and uh, 
baseball. And so that was a really fun experience, kind of getting my toes, like literally like my foot in the water, not even a foot, like I would literally say like half a toe in the water of understanding what coverage means, especially in sports and beyond because social media wasn't as relevant then. It's definitely developed as my career's developed. So uh, got my toe, you know, in the water. And then by the time I was going into my senior year, I was like, all right, like, I think I'm ready to make the jump and make this my full time career and what I want to do with my life. And from there, no one would hire me because I was pre-med and I had no relevant uh, other than like my industry experience at the university. I didn't necessarily have experience from like the school degree mm-hmm. level, which I guess matters. <laughs> um, so I, I went to NYU and got my master's in sports business uh, my first two years in New York while interning and doing various jobs around there. You said you covered all sports, right? You said baseball, basketball, football. Do you think that helped you just kind of deepen your understanding of like how to cover basketball just from seeing what covering other sports was like and the different flows of their game and just exposed to all kinds of people? Yeah, 100%. I mean, if anyone knows, you know, the Southeast, it's huge in college football. I mean, it's a multi-billion dollar entity. Of course, there's no money to pay the players. What sense that makes? No idea. <laughs> Anyways, that's a whole different topic. But that really helped because, you know, it's a behemoth of, of a project to cover any Southeastern schools football program. And so, and and especially because while I was there, they were national championship contenders and then did win it in 2013. So I really got to understand what it meant to cover, you know, or sport a team at the highest of levels and kind of adapt that into what I did following those years beyond football and in applying that to other sports. It really did help me understand the realm and like the gravity of what it is to cover, you know, a major sports team. Can you speak a little bit more to that? Like, I think you said you covered them while they were a national championship team. What was it like to be covering them in that moment? Just seeing, you know, from an exposure standpoint of how many people were drawn to the school and drawn to the team and are looking to follow that season. It was pretty crazy. I, for me, I mean, listen, I was definitely a sophomore in college. There was, I wasn't doing much uh, beyond intern work, but it was some really great experience to work specifically with the Seminoles.com team. And so, you know, a lot of post-game practice you know, press conferences and getting to develop relationships, I would say, with the coaches and the players. That's what I would say that experience taught me the most is how important that is to into whatever level of a job you do, whether it's on the content end, the business end, any, like you have to develop some level of a relationship with the talent you're working with directly. And I think that's what that experience taught me the most. Do you recall some of those things that, you know, you learned were important to carry those relationships and, and to develop them? The, the hardest part, and I think anyone will understand what I mean, is it took some time to gain the trust of Jimbo Fisher. It took some time to gain the trust of the players you're covering because mm-hmm. from a media perspective and what they understand media to be is, you know, I don't want to say a snitch, but like kind of like that is what they, you know, the level of trust just isn't there between players and media. So you have to work on that. And so that was kind of one of my biggest things. And, and by my, the end of my senior year, and I had worked closely with uh, Jimbo's right-hand woman, the COO of the Boosters organization, who I still have a really deep connection with. She, I mean, she wrote all my reference letters to every job I applied to after then. And that, you know, by the end of my senior year, he knew who I was and there was a level of trust where it was like, if I needed to do something, it wasn't like he was, you know, no, don't want mm-hmm. that person to do this. And I think it's just kind of understanding the realm of how that all works that, I mean, led to the NBA because the NBA is even more so, I mean, it's a bigger stage. How did you bridge that gap between athlete and 
media outlet because you know as as an athlete it is a tricky or like a slippery slope you know as mm-hmm. you try and garner that trust and you know you obviously are looking for a story you're looking for an inside scoop or just a better connection mm-hmm. to write about but you also have to stay genuine and know your parameters so how did you try to bridge that gap yeah i think for me it's kind of staying true to who i am and my you know own moral and ethical uh line and the same one that exists for most journalists you develop a sense of trust and you know from there i'm always a player minded person i'm never gonna do anything for the sake of content that's just for me personally that's not who i am there are people out there that you know that is their mindset never has been who i've been and so i think kind of staying true to that beyond you know my college years interning with the Knicks my first year and then going into the WNBA, that's really what I would say led me to where I am because I wouldn't be in the position I was if I didn't have, you know, the garnered the trust and the relationships I've had with the players. Because in the end, that is, you know, one of the biggest I don't want to say leverage, but it's one of the biggest assets you can have as a media member, you know, the relationships with players. And, and it really does launch careers beyond, I mean, all the woes, anyone, like they have relationships with players. That's why they trust them to break news when they do break news, whatever, whoever it may be. Um, right. But yeah, so it, it is something that does, it just, you kind of have to stick to your, you know, own code and then develop that over time and just prove to people that you're trustworthy. So when you went to New York, did you have that goal in mind? You still wanted to work in sports media when you were going to school? Was that the type of jobs you were looking for and working in? Yeah. Um, right when I, it was like four or five weeks prior to starting in my in my first semester at NYU, I had been like submitting applications into black holes of teamwork online positions. I mean, anyone who works in sports media knows who what that site is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and all of a sudden I get a call back. I actually... Funny enough, had flown myself to New York one a couple months prior to uh, go to this networking event to try and meet people from the Garden uh, Madison Square Garden Company to see you know what if anything could happen. It ended up kind of working out. So MSG called me about three, yeah, four weeks before I moved over to New York and said, "Hey, we have a position on our NBA, the Knicks side. Uh, it's community operations. You'd be working specifically with building events with our foundations team, and then working with alumni relations and keeping the." relationships that we have with old past Knicks players. Um, and I went through several rounds of inter- interviews. I mean, it was just like it came out of the blue and they called me up and they're like, hey, you got the job. Can you start the day you start school? It was kind of crazy. And so it was it was a really quick turnaround, something that kind of came out of nowhere. But that position really set, I would say, like the strongest foundation for what would end up, you know, being my current career because the people I worked with there, you know, have turned into my mentors. And so, you know, beyond what actually happens on the work end, they're the people I turn to for advice from, you know, a career path perspective, especially because, you know, so many of the decisions I've had to make recently have been a a kind of more life altering, I would say, than um, previous decisions. So while it wasn't necessarily the work that really passionate about. It was work that I loved. One, I was giving back to a community. And two, it, it really taught me how to work in a corporate space, especially in the sports field. So I really appreciated that job, even though it wasn't on the media end, but it, it did catapult me into the NBA position eventually. Can you speak more to that? Because I think there are a lot of people that, um, especially who are interested in working in sports, but you don't know what it's like until you actually do it, uh, mm-hmm. especially working in that type of corporate setting. Can you speak a little bit more to what that was like being your kind of your first job in sports at that level and what it was like to operate in that kind of system? Yeah. Um, so MSG, you know, is a thousand plus employee company. So it, it is extremely corporate. And and the team I was working on, um, and like most corporate jobs, especially on the sports end, you're doing the jobs of different people beyond just yourself. So it was just kind of life all 
altering because it taught me how to, you know, be responsible for projects and lead them up and take initiative to set meetings with directors and senior vice presidents and not be scared to speak up in those meetings, even though, you know, I'm fresh out of college, just, you know, my first year in grad school. So while it wasn't necessarily the position that I was dreaming of, it, it's really what taught me how to work in a corporate space in, the, in terms of just being timely, direct, concise, and really efficient. Because in the end, that's what anyone wants in the corporate world in sports. We have everything's running a mile a minute. Everything's happening all the time. You know, live sports coverage is all the time. Same with, you know, even on the events end, there's something going on 24-7 for a team. So it just taught me how to be extremely efficient with my time, which is what really helped me on the NBA side. Because like, you know, MSG was one level of efficiency, but the NBA as a company is a complete other one. Can you speak to that as well? I know because again, the NBA is one of these, you know, companies that we're familiar with, um, but not many people have the inside information or, or just the ability to see what it's like to see that giant, you know, move and operate. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about that transition to the NBA a little bit more and then what you kind of remember most fondly about it? Yeah, tell yeah, us about the uh, league, man. League <laughs> no, it's pretty crazy. There's just like a, you know, a billion people, you know, having eyes on sets of content and whatever it may be. So you have to be really on top and ahead of any content series pieces beyond live game coverage, because it has to be approved by the manager and then the director and then the director to the vice president, and the vice president to the senior vice president. And so you have to be really on top of it in terms of and really, I would say detail oriented. I think that is definitely what that job taught me. I'm quarter again. So like, I don't know if it's part of us, but like, I'm not super detail oriented, which I struggle with. So I blame my mom. Sorry if you're listening. Anyways. No. So that job really taught me that like, if you're, there's a mistake on your work, like someone's going to call you out on it. And I definitely got called out on it. I actually like three weeks into the job and like never again did that mistake happen again. I was traumatized. I mean, not traumatized, but it was just one of those things where it's like, it got all the way up. Very basically the highest you can go. At the <laughs> I, won't, I won't say specifics, but the highest it could go. And it was definitely a mistake on my end. That's just the truth of it. You know, there's eyeballs everywhere all the time, always, you know, making sure that you're doing the work correctly and covering the game and, and having, you know, the right information. And so that was definitely a very big learning experience from an efficiency side. So it's not, not only about being timely and efficient, but also like very accurate. And that's definitely what the league taught me because, you know, any little mistake is caught like that and it's called out right away. So definitely learned uh, that part of the job there. And that was when you were working on the WNBA side of things for the league? Yeah. And so funny enough, um, I I forget if he's a senior vice president or just the vice president of the entire digital media group. I believe he's a senior vice president. Anyways, you know, he he has, you know, daughters that play WNBA. So he's really big on it, which I was so excited about. But, you know, because he's so big on it, he's, of course, going to see, you know, any mistakes that happen. And sadly enough, he saw my mistake. And, uh, you know, it was a big learning experience. Definitely, for sure. You know, they understood, too. Like, listen, I was three weeks into the job. Like, you can only be so understanding to someone who's still kind of getting their bearings. But no, I, I swear it was like, I spoke to my manager afterwards. And he's like, watch, you'll never make the same mistake again. And I never did. I never did. I've to this day, like had never made that same mistake again. What was it like in the office at WNBA? Was this four years ago? Two years ago now. Two years ago. Two years ago. Because I feel like even in the last two years, the WNBA has grown a lot. Um, yeah, and I'm curious um, what that was like during your time there and maybe how you've seen it grow since then. 
What's interesting about my team, um, we were actually under the NBA team. So we weren't actually in New York where the WNBA offices are. So for those of you who don't know, um, there are two NBA offices, the league office, the main office is in New York on Fifth Avenue. And then they have their content team, which is in Secaucus, New Jersey. That's where the NBA replay center is. Uh, Basically everyone that's doing anything with digital streaming broadcast and or social media content, it's all in Secaucus. None of it's in New York. And so we fell under the NBA team um, at that time. I'm not sure where that's at now. So um, I didn't necessarily get to see like the WNBA team working super closely together. But right as I was leaving, I was actually really fortunate to be a part of their rebrand conversations. Um, I don't know if for those of you who don't know, they just got a whole new logo, a whole new strategy, a whole new team and all that dedicated specifically to the WNBA. It's a a great group of people that are extremely talented. And I was fortunate enough to be a part of those conversations going um, right before that actually did get implemented. And so I was able to see dedicated professionals professionals in the creative space, in the marketing space, on the sales and business space that were going to be holistically uh, dedicated to a women's basketball league, which I thought that was the most exciting. I didn't get to experience much of it, um, unfortunately, because I left right before the switch all happened. But um, that was, I think, one of the most exciting moments of my time there was seeing uh, how the WNBA had progressed enough to a point where it's, all right, let's dedicate specific people to this because they're two completely different businesses. While yes, basketball is their tie. Um, It's just two completely different audiences and businesses as a whole. The way they function, the way they run. Um, You can't put the same marketing plan that you put on the NBA for the WNBA. And I think that was the strategy that was working for some time, but it's just two different audiences and games that you're trying to attract. What was the focus of the rebrand? And in your opinion, you know, covering the WNBA, what did you see was, you know, the point of emphasis that to differentiate the WNBA from the NBA and to make it really, you know, stand on its own two feet and grow it? Yeah, um, I think that they were finally, you know, trying to get women to start watching. It was no longer about trying to get men's basketball fans to watch. It was let's how do we get women involved? Women that may not even be sports fans, but they'll watch. It's the same way um, from a strategy perspective that you speak about Serena Williams. A lot of people aren't tennis fans, but they know who Serena is. They know what she's done over the years and the level of icon that she's reached. And I think that's the approach they started taking and that I've seen, um, so to speak. And so that's where I was really excited because you see successful female athletes in other sports, even in soccer, as well as tennis. And so how do you take that strategy and now focus it on a league of women? Um, I think that is a little more difficult, a little tricky. It's not you're working with one team and you're not working with one individual player. You're working with 12 teams and 144 players. So it's a difficult thing to adapt. I would say that's the most exciting moment to see that direction they were taking in terms of building out this league that was meant for female watchers beyond Mm -hmm. just the avid basketball fans. Because basketball fans that are like real fans of the game are already watching the WNBA. If you look at any account right now, it is 50% male, 50% female, and all the males in terms of like a demographic standpoint, they're all skew older. So they're all avid older basketball fans that, you know, were probably around at the launch in the 90s. And so you already have that core group. You don't have to worry about them. It's how do we get new fans? And so that was really where uh, I got excited in the rebrand mm-hmm. and the strategy that they took. What do you think are the most common misconceptions from your experience about how people who are less educated about the sport of basketball view the WNBA style of play? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know where to begin with that question because it can go so many places. Uh, but 
more than anything, it's, we know, well, there's no dunks. It's not exciting. That's the number one thing. And, you know, I get that. I understand that that is a part of the NBA that attracts viewers and fans and, and excitement. But the biggest argument I try to play is... Think about 2015 Warriors or 2016 Warriors. They changed the game. They turned it into small ball, three-point shooting from range. And that really is what WM and it's team basketball, by the way. It's, you're not seeing many ISOs. It's very, very few ISO or two-on-two -two play. And so the style of play is really team focused. And so when you're talking about learning from a game and really understanding the basics and the core of what you learn growing up playing basketball like WNBA is that it's textbook that well, so Camille, um, I would, I would uh, challenge you though you know mm -hmm. the NBA and, and for all all it's worth is very much superstar basketball yeah like, even on, even on that Warriors team and the Warriors team that everyone saw later years with Durant I think mm -hmm. so many people were like polarized by them because they had Curry and they had Thompson and they had Draymond Green and mm -hmm. they all drafted like those guys together they all fit and played like superstars whether it be offensive or defense they all mm -hmm. had it and then Durant came and he was like, oh, he's already like made a name for himself and now he's joining. And now we have these guys where we can just watch them mm -hmm. play like, you know, one on one free basketball. And so yeah. my question to you would be, how does the WNBA kind of like market around team basketball that's more of a pure backdoors passing they have some very good players like don't get me wrong i enjoy watching the wba mm -hmm. but how would how can they market and challenge ratings of the nba with their style of basketball i would say almost in complete opposite of what the rebrand strategy is it's because they know that the avid basketball fans are already watching because they understand that that style of play does attract them when you even think about the nba like it's not like everyone is a basketball purist most of no, these guys right, right. Love, love the drama love the messiness love the names all that you know i don't even know if i can cuss on your bullshit but i'll just say that <laughs> you're good um, to right, go cool. so the, the w is no longer trying to do that you know for them it's about let's get garner toward women that you know like supporting women and appreciate what these women do outside of the game of basketball so from a marketing perspective i wouldn't say that the style of play is what they're trying to attract people with to that point, you can make the argument it is similar to the NBA strategy where it's let's go icon based. Who do you see the most? Diana Taurasi, Sue Bird, Candace mm. Parker. You know, I mean, it is star based. It is. That's how they are trying to transition a little bit more out of that and do more, you know, no name players. Because like even the sixth woman on the bench is is playing, you know, at least half the game. It's pretty mm. ridiculous. And but um, that's where I would say they don't try to market the style of play. They really do try to market players. Is that the right strategy? I I'm not necessarily sure. I think it is a big trial and error thing with the W because it's, you know, what a society going to accept nowadays. You know, we are in the middle of a women's movement, which I think is been the most beneficial to this league in respects to women supporting them because it's strange how many women you would see not saying very kind things about the WNBA when they literally couldn't do anything themselves. So it is interesting to see how the women's movement has really, I would say, surged forward the WNBA's growth. But then the argument can be made is what was the difference between 1997 and the We Got Next campaign that, you know, they were filling 13,000 people stadiums and every game and selling them out and the Houston Comets are winning four in a row and everyone knew who Lisa Leslie was and everyone knew who Cheryl Swoops was or sure. Cynthia Cooper. So, you know, what is the difference and why did it work then versus what's working now? It's more about where society nowadays. And so just kind of learning from that and trying to gear toward it. Fun fact, my sister played for Cheryl Swoops. 
That's awesome. Cheryl is, I mean, one, we've worked with her so many times. She's an OG, a real one, and one of the truest and most purest believers of this game. And like, man, she was hard. Like she, everyone wanted to be like Cheryl Swoops. Like I had, I, I bought a pair of Swoops recently, you know, when the first ever like, wait, 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 you said you recently bought a pair of Swoops. Okay, yeah, but like I wasn't growing up. They still, like, sw- I, they still sell Swoops? Yeah, you can find them on Go and like other subtle plug. Okay. Um, you can find them anywhere. <laughs> I wanted to ask, uh, and this is a question that I kind of find myself thinking about a lot. You know, originally before Kobe had passed, rest in peace, I believed, I had a feeling that Kobe was going to be really involved in the WNBA and really kind of help it split off from the NBA in a way. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the WNBA, in your opinion, would be better off separating entirely from the NBA? Or do you think that it's in a good position because of its association with the NBA? It's separated internally, but it's not separated as an entity. Like you still that's, get your yeah, that's what I mean. No, it's but a, they, it's have their, they have their own CBA now. Like they used to literally be in yeah. the ruling of the NBA, and now mm-hmm. with their new it's, collective bargaining agreement, they make and share their own money. Like they're establishing their own identity. I guess what I'm saying is just from like an outside perspective of people who aren't as aware of that, right? As aware of the CBA, the WNBA is, I believe, still a subsidiary of the NBA. Mm-hmm. So do you think that, and again, I, I'm not saying one way or the other. I think it's just something to think about. From your opinion, do you think that the value it gets from being associated with the NBA, and I think even the support that we've been seeing from the NBA has been pretty vast, especially from players wearing the WNBA sweatshirts mm-hmm. to games and really just kind of talking about the importance of the women's game. Do you think that there's another side of it where maybe they go their own way and really create their own brand? Yeah, I, it's funny. I go back and forth. I really do go back and forth because one day I'm like, they really, sh- especially from when I was working there, I was like, oh, they should separate. They should have their own business entities. They should have their own resources. They should have anything like, you know, basically stand alone. And then I think about it more and I think any women's league. I mean, soccer is the most popular, I would say, women's sport, probably. I mean, basketball and soccer are pretty up there, but like the women's national team, I mean, they've been on the soccer end. They've been huge for years. And even the Mm -hmm. NWSL does struggle. And so not necessarily struggle financially, but it's not as garnered, I would say. Like, I think the W probably has some more fans. Soccer is just an easier sport to understand. So maybe it has more casual fans. All right. I'm going to get soccer people killing me after this break. (laughs) All right. I don't know if that's right. I'm just going to say it. Anyways. I do think that it wouldn't have the opportunity to test out so many things if it weren't under the NBA. Listen, it's a multi-billion dollar company. Like if you're under the NBA, you're set. Like you don't have to worry about going bankrupt or, you know, different real financial fiscal issues that, you know, surround any league. Mm -hmm. Look at the the XFL. Yeah, the XFL. I mean, obviously beyond COVID, but like beyond that, they they did try to start another football league a couple of years back, I remember. And so football, which is America's sport, the biggest sport in the country. and, And there really is only one league that can do it. It's tough for me to decide on which way or the other because I do go back and forth. I think it could flourish really well on its own because it could build everything on its own. But I do think it's starting to do that. Where's that money coming from, though? And I'm not saying that as a, like, WNBA sucks perspective. Like, I want it to flourish Mm -hmm. and do well. Where are they going to get their investors or like, where is the the Mm -hmm. huge TV deal? Like, where are they going to get that money to, you know, rival some of the other leagues? beyond COVID. And when I was there, it was selling tickets. I was, their big thing was, you know, when we did the rebrand structure or the rebrand, they did an entire market study in terms of the 12 markets they're in. I think they only did eight of them, but they did an entire research study on which how can they get 
women in those markets to games. And so that's always been the biggest point of emphasis because at least for, you know, Adam Silver, Mark Tatum and their team. And I, I do agree that that is really big because then the, the teams are able to make their own money and then, you know, function as a, their own entities as opposed to like, I don't fully understand how it works now from like a pool of money, but it is like the NBA does support the W from like a marketing and beyond like actual selling tickets perspective, if that makes sense mm-hmm. financially. I think that's the number one goal. It's let's get people in seats, let's sell tickets and let's start selling out because then at that point, the teams are making their own money and they can kind of uh, go from there. The TV deals are already increasing. That's why salary cap did increase this year. Anyone knows the ESPN contract with ABC and ESPN went up huge this year in the past two years where they're airing. Well, it was supposed to be like something like 40 something games this year, as opposed to like 20 something that were aired because of COVID um, and the new season and all that. The TV deals are going up, which is already, that's what's turning into the player seeing more money. I think the big thing too, beyond selling tickets is getting major brands to invest that are not NBA affiliated. Because Mm -hmm. to me, and and that's something that I'm seeing currently at Slam when I do brand partnerships, deals, or pitch decks, it's let's not garner to the Slam audience. You know, the Slam audience isn't going to want to see a women's bat. You know, let's start looking at women's brands, whether that be in beauty and skincare, anything it may be, but that are specifically garnered to, you know, women. So I think that is one thing that I already know that they were working on when I left. But from a marketing perspective, I think that's another place they can make some really good money. And AT&T is a great sponsor for them right now, which has been amazing. You brought up the salaries, which I think is an important thing to note, because like you said, the new CBA, they raise the minimums and the maximums, right, for the salaries mm-hmm. by a good amount. But I'm not sure a lot of people know this, and I know you can speak to this. A lot of players in the WNBA have to play in other leagues outside of the WNBA season just to make decent money, mm-hmm. you know, continue to have their brand out there and get the attention or a fraction of the attention that a lot of these NBA guys get just from being on the court. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you speak to that a little bit, what it's like for those players to have to deal with all that travel and just like the physical and mental toll of having to play in two different leagues, like full year round? Yeah, I mean, for anyone that plays the game at a professional level, you know how exhausting it is to be 24-7. And not only just that, but like you're playing and you're playing on different time zones. You're away from your family, your kids. A lot of these players are mothers. They're away from their kids for, you know, portions of the year at a time. It's extremely, extremely difficult mentally, emotionally, physically. Um, And you see that when you have players sitting out years. I mean, Diana Taurasi's out out a year. Maya Moore is still two years out of the league. Um, You see a lot of injuries. We lost Stewie, our MVP, all last year. So it is extremely difficult because these women, I would say, work probably, and I'm not trying to, like, down any of the NBA guys, but I'm just, they work almost like two times harder because they have to. It's just to make ends meet because they want to play the game of basketball. Um, but they, because overseas teams, a lot of them are owned. Um, they, they fall under like a revenue sharing team model that I don't fully understand. But like, for instance, you know, the owner of Chelsea will also own a women's basketball team. And Chelsea, one of the biggest soccer teams in the world, obviously has the revenue share that they mm-hmm. pay these players well. So like a Liz Cambage is making a well over six figures in China while she's playing. Same with mostly leagues in Europe. So in Turkey and Russia, those are the the three biggest areas. 
it, it is really about making ends meet. And not only that, but like feeling like you're getting paid for what you do. Uh, that's just the reality of it. They work really hard. And at least if they're doing it overseas, they're getting paid what they feel they deserve, what they deserve. It's not feel, it's what they deserve. And it's really difficult and taxing, but a lot of them, you know, they do it to make ends meet for as long as they can. And then they'll, after like a portion of their career is done, they will stay home during the off season. You'll see most vets don't go overseas now. I think just knowing what they have to go through really just helps because everyone looks at it as part of the NBA. And mm-hmm. if you're not aware of what these women have to go through night in and night out, you you know, you assume that they're just making all this money because they're on TV playing professional basketball. But I think it's just important that point is expressed. And, and I guess from your experience also watching the WNBA bubble this season mm-hmm. um, with all the craziness happening, how do you think that has done for them? And do you think that this will be a great jumping off point for the league to move forward and grow? I mean, it sucks. I mean, COVID and everything, I think, detracted from the, from the, I would say, momentum the W had gained leading into this season. I mean, obviously, it's, it's great to be able to see a lot of these games. Most of them were aired because there weren't as many this year. So I do think, you know, from a visibility standpoint, it did help in that respect. And I actually kind of liked that it was going at the same time as the NBA. I'm not necessarily sure why. I just, most people were scared. And I mean, the league has been scared for so many years to not put it competing against itself. But I actually didn't mind it. A lot of the doubleheaders came prior to finals or playoff games. And so I thought it was pretty well scheduled. And I think it, it it's going to allow an opportunity for the league to understand what does and doesn't work. They got to test out, you know, for the first time in I don't even know how many years, the W and the NBA playing alongside each other and, and how that worked out and how that uh, did well. I think the biggest thing the bubble did uh, for these women is it allowed them to be extremely active and really combined in their efforts and social justice beyond what's happening on the court because of, you know, everyone's in the bubble, everyone's together that, you know, they established the social justice council right when they got there. That was early July, right? Right. They arrived around July 5th or 6th. So yeah, they established that right away. And it was a a coalition of women that would have these discussions about, all right, what's going to be our efforts that we're doing, we're going through the season. So they worked really closely with Breonna Taylor's mother. They had, you know, a big conversation with Michelle Obama. And so not only that, being together really allow them to unite and what their message want their what they wanted their message to be. But I think it's what helped made it make an impact, especially um, in terms of what you see now the NBA doing or the MLB and the women have always been on the front lines of that. I know the attention and the and the you know lights camera actions not all there for it, but they really have been at the front lines of it for years beyond you know 2020. Again, important to note that they have been leading this charge and this isn't the first time. And, and now that they're getting this recognition and they can continue to move forward and just continue to grow the sport. So I, I'm definitely excited to to watch it do its thing and, and see where it goes from here. Yeah, definitely. It's going to be a really great coming years. A hundred percent. What's next for Camille Buxta? What's, uh, what's the news, <laughs> man? In a dream world, what, are, what do you want to do with uh, life, man? Um, well, you know, I do love content and what I do. And, and I think what one of the coolest parts of my job has been getting to work with the next generation, a lot of high school kids, the next up and comers, you know, the Paige Beckers of the world and the AZ Fuds and, and some really, really great young talent and getting to see just like how the game has progressed for so many years on the women's side. Um, in my dream world, I would love to one day open up a training facility somehow similar to a sports academy that is built and, and dedicated to multiple sports with a basketball focus, where and how that looks like, 
stay tuned. You're <laughs> not there yet, but one day. <laughs> well, that's great. I don't know if you have any questions or thoughts for us, but yeah, I think that's uh, what we got for you today. Who do you have winning the WNBA title? I have to ask you that. Come on. I want the Connecticut team to win. Yeah. Okay. They're playing tonight, game five in 30 minutes. The girl that just uh, killed and had a dislocated shoulder and came back and played well. Yeah. She uh, also has two partially torn labrums and she's playing, been playing with for two years now. She like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all the way rooting for her. Do the Sharks still have, <laughs> That's uh, wild. What's her name? The, the big, the post from the Virgin. John Quell Jones. Yeah. She, yes, she sat out the year due to COVID. Um, but yeah, John Quell is a beast. It's crazy that they're still playing so well without her. They have Duana Bonner, who, I mean, was a free agency ad from this year. It was prior playing in Phoenix with Diana Taurasi mm-hmm. um, and Brittany Griner. So it's a great ad for them and, and really what has filled the void and, and them kind of still being able to be a top premier team in the league. But we'll see what happens tonight. I know this is not coming out for a while, but game five is tonight. And so we'll see who's in the finals. <laughs> yep. Well, thank you, Camille, for jumping on with us. Really appreciate sure. it. And definitely looking forward to having you back on. Yeah. Thanks, guys. This is awesome. Enjoy the rest of the podcast. And please keep <laughs> making jokes on here because like, I need it for my life. Will do. I'll leave that up to Vic. This podcast is presented by Bristol Studio, edited by Chris Hernandez, music by James Grissom. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.